0: nice to be with you this morning on this wonderful Resurrection Sunday, and of course we have to deal with the burden hanging over us of not being able to uh, be together physically, but nonetheless, I thank the Lord and am grateful for opportunities like this where we can be together even remotely and digitally uh, through these means. So praise be to God, and let it not dampen our day today, but let us give thanks and praise to God for the glory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the hope that we have in him uh, because of it. So praise be to God. And I want to welcome you to our service here at Affirmation Presbyterian Church. I'm Bill Spanger, uh, the pastor at uh, Affirmation. And I'm uh, broadcasting today from Chapelfield Christian Schools, uh, our library here on the second floor. And, uh, and it's good to be with you. And as we come now to the preaching of God's word, our text this morning is Romans chapter five, verses one through five. And Paul says in Colossians, he reminds us or commands us essentially in light of the resurrection to set our minds on things above. And boy, I just think if ever there was a time in which we needed to hear that command or be chastened to do such a thing as we heard in our in our word of exhortation this morning, it's today. It's in this time, right? When our minds are so fixed on the things of this earth and on the problems that are surrounding us, again, health-wise and uh, economically and financially and all these kinds of things that we're wrestling with ourselves. If ever we needed to hear the chastisement of the word of God to set our minds on things above, it is now. But praise God that it's Resurrection Sunday and that this day really draws us away from the problems of this world. It draws our eyes to heavenly things. It draws our eyes to the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today is Resurrection Sunday, and of course, as Christians, every Sunday we come to worship the Lord. We celebrate in the light of the resurrection. But it's important for us to remember on this Easter Sunday, as we should every Easter Sunday, that as we celebrate the resurrection, we're not merely looking back to a past event, though we are, and we consider the resurrection of Jesus Christ on that first Easter Sunday. But that's not merely what we're doing, nor are we merely looking forward to a future event. Though there is a future event that's waiting us in light of what Christ has done, we too will be raised from the dead. Our bodies are going to come out of that grave. That's the joy of what we celebrate, is that one day our bodies will be raised from the dead. But that also is not the only thing that we celebrate as we come here on Easter Sunday. It's not merely a looking back or a looking forward, though it is both of those things. There's also a resurrection reality that is ours right now here in the present. Right Right now, Christ is risen. Right now, Christ is at the right hand of the Father. Right now, death is conquered. Not merely death will be conquered. Death has been and is conquered right now. And right now, you and I who are in the Lord Jesus Christ, united to him by faith, are and have been raised with him we are seated with him in the heavenly places and we are according to the apostle paul a new creation and that is what i want to focus us on this morning the present implications of what is ours because of the resurrection of jesus christ all those 2000 years ago what are the implications for us right now the text that we're looking at as i've already mentioned is romans chapter 5 verses one through five, and that was read to you by Mark Dobson this morning, I won't reread the text. But if you have it open before you, it's important that you take time to look at it and follow as we go and think through with me, what are these implications of the resurrection for us right now in our present day and in the midst of our present troubles? Now, as we get going, the context of our passage is very important because it's the context that's going to set for us the link to the resurrection. And that context is in Romans chapter four, and though, of course, it would be important, one one tough thing about jumping anywhere into the middle of an argument from the Apostle Paul is that it's loaded with therefores, and since then, and what shall we then say? And so you always have to go back, but when you go back, it says therefore, and when you go back, it says therefore. So in order to understand anything in Paul, you almost have to read the whole letter. So even going back to the context will be a challenge for us. But I'll just go back and read just a couple verses from chapter 4 because you will see here that it sets the link for us in terms of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and its present implications. And, of course, in verse 22, it begins with a therefore. So I challenge you go back and read chapter 4 later. But it says, And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness, speaking of Abraham and his faith in the promises of God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness, Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It will be imputed to us who believe in him, that is, to us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our faith will be credited to us as righteousness. It will be imputed to us who believe in the Lord, who raised up our Lord from, uh, Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised for our justification. He was delivered up for our offenses, and he was raised for our justification. So let's just take a second and think about those two things. First, Paul says, he was delivered up for our offenses. This is essentially the sermon that I preached last week, right? Remember, Jesus in Isaiah 53 is the man of sorrows. He's the one who's bruised for us. He's the one who's crushed for us. He's the one who has stripes for us. He's the man of sorrows For us, he's acquainted with grief for us. He's stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God for us. He is the bearer of all these things because, as we thought last week, he bears our sins. He was delivered up, says Paul, for our offenses. And this is important because it helps us, it helps explain for us what we're seeing when we look at Good Friday. What is the event of Good Friday? What's happening? Well, we know what's happening. There is the Son of God incarnate bearing our offenses, being delivered up for us all who are sinners indeed. So Paul begins with that. He was delivered up for our offenses. But then he continues. He was raised for our justification. He was delivered up for our offenses. He was raised for our justification. And here Paul wonderfully sheds some light and shines some light on one facet of the resurrection, and perhaps the most central facet of the resurrection, namely that his resurrection is for our justification. Now, the term justification, especially for Reformed folks, it's a theological category, it's a theological doctrine, and can oftentimes kind of be uh, uh, um, relegated, if you will, to some abstract theological concept. But what this text for us does, uh, what it does for us, is it rescues the topic of justification from the abstract theological proposition department and brings it into real time and space history. Justification is not abstract, but it turns out it's a concrete historical act. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ came our justification. When Christ walked out of that grave, we who are united to him by faith were justified in a very real sense. That is to say, on the cross, our sin in its totality was judged. And in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we in Christ came through that judgment and out the other side. This is so important. And worth deep and long contemplation, the fact that if you are united to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, you are in fact on the other side of final judgment. That final judgment has already taken place for you then in Christ. Again, what is happening on Good Friday? On Good Friday, the end time, final judgment on that great day when the trumpet sounds, that day has been pulled forward or backwards, if you will, into time. And that day is what falls upon Christ at Golgotha. Final judgment comes upon the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross so that all of us who are united to him by faith have had our offenses completely dealt with completely judged. And when Jesus Christ comes out of that grave, all who are united to him by faith, all who have been crucified with him by faith are now on the other side of judgment and are in a very real sense in Christ, already in glory. It's very important for us to think about when it comes to the death of Jesus Christ, and I draw this for my students, almost wish I had a whiteboard here, I'd draw it up for you. But it's important that you get a picture of what's happening in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because oftentimes we think of the resurrection of Christ as Christ going into the grave, dying, three days in the grave, if you will, and then coming back from the grave, coming back to life. But this is in fact not what happened. What happened in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that, going into the grave and coming back, is what happened, let's say, in the case of Lazarus. But it's not what happened in the case of Christ. Jesus did not come back back from the dead. Jesus went into the grave and then went out through death onto the other side into new creation. He didn't come back from the dead, he burst a hole out the back side of the grave and went through judgment having faithfully and fully fulfilled all that was required of God's judgment, he went out the other side into resurrection and new creation. Resurrection is not life back from the dead. It's going through death into a new order, into a new creation. And this is what Jesus has done. And this is what is true for all of us who are united to him by faith. Isn't that a wonderful relief to think, in fact, that if we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, there is no more judgment for us? We're on the other side of the great and final judgment in Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that we won't stand before God one day, but it does mean that all our judgment is satisfied. And even if we have to give an account and we will give an account for the, for the doings of our lives and for the works that we produce, but because we in Christ are on the other side of judgment, we'll be held accountable for it. Perhaps there will be loving discipline of a father who chastises us for our unrepented sin. But there will be no judgment for us. Remember what Paul says in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of the resurrection. And Paul makes that point for us here that in Christ we are out the other side. He was offered up for our sins, for our offenses. And he was raised for our justification. Now, Paul then launches into the implications of this in Romans chapter five, the text that was already read for us. And I would like to take those and just look at the three basic implications. I'm not saying these are the only ones, but Paul gives us three wonderful implications here to the fact that in Christ, our sins have been paid for and we have been justified in his resurrection. So what, what are the implications for us? First, the first implication comes from Paul in chapter in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Peace with God. Boy, if there's anything we want right now, it's peace, isn't it? I think we all feel unsettled. The ground is constantly moving under our feet. We want peace today. But what we're looking for right now is a subjective peace, right? An internal peace. We want to feel at. Peace. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But the question we have to ask is what is our internal peace, our subjective peace, if you will? What's it dependent on? What is it latched to? What is it tethered itself to? What is what outside of us is going to give us internal peace? And the problem most of us have right now, myself included, is that we're looking for that internal peace by trying to get a grip on the external problems of life around us. If they would just get settled, then we would have internal peace. But Paul, we know, linked his internal peace to something much greater, something much less temperamental, something much less fleeting and much less temporary. Paul linked his internal peace to his relationship with the one true triune God. For Paul, the only true internal peace could come from solid external peace with God himself. If we are right with him, then everything else falls into place. I think particularly of Martin Luther. If you know anything about Martin Luther's biography, Martin Luther's life was a mess. He felt at odds with God. He felt as if he was an enemy with God. He felt like in his own works and efforts, there was nothing he could ultimately do to please God. His life was a complete train wreck. And, and Johann Staupitz, the, the head of his of his monastery, recognized that Luther was really in trouble. I mean, he might even be heading for suicide. He was in this death spiral of depression, recognizing that he was not at peace with God. But when Luther found and discovered by God's grace the gospel, and the all-sufficient righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Martin Luther discovered this, he even says it was if a, it was as if a burden rolled off his back and he entered into the very gates of paradise itself. Luther's life, the tumultuous waters of Luther's life became peace and became calm. Because now he knew that in the Lord Jesus Christ, because of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, he had peace with God. And if he had peace with God, then nothing else mattered. He was in some sense bulletproof. Right? What, if Christ is for us, who can be against us? Now, it doesn't mean Luther didn't falter from time to time. It doesn't mean that he didn't have moments where he stumbled. Even as he stood before Charles V at the Diet of Orms, his knees buckled and he asked for another day to think about his answer. But nonetheless, in the end, he was resolved and he did what he had to do because when I say bulletproof, I don't mean I'm not taking our struggles and our doubts and our fears lightly, but I'm talking about in an objective sense, we're bulletproof, right? What can really harm us? We have peace with Almighty God. This is the beauty of the resurrection. The resurrection means that while once we were enemies of God, and I know that's troubling to think about, the fact that anybody would be considered an enemy of God. Doesn't God love everybody? How could anybody be considered an enemy of God? Well, again, these are the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. He says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Enemies of God. He reconciled, he loved us, and he poured himself out for us. It's Paul who uses this language of enmity. We were by nature enemies of God. But the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is that we who were once enemies are now made sons and daughters. Now again, I I believe that this truth will only excite you to the extent that you know that you once were an enemy of God. And if we have a low view of sin, and if we have a low view of the holiness of God, if we really don't think that the tension between sinners and a holy God is that big a deal, it's just something God should get over, and he should just love everybody because everybody's worth loving, if we have that kind of view, then the idea of peace with God will not excite us. But if we know that we are vile sinners, if we know what our sin deserves— According to his holiness, if we know how repulsive our sin is to the glory of God, then the declaration that we have objective peace with God will cause our hearts to sing. You and I were once enemies of God. Now we are reconciled. Now we are considered sons and daughters. This is the first implication of the fact that Christ bore our offenses on the cross and was raised for our justification. So, first, peace with God. Let your heart rejoice in the fact that you are at peace with an almighty and all holy God, though you and I are sinners indeed. The second implication, according to Paul, is access. So, the first implication that he was raised for our justification is we have peace with God, and then not only do we have peace, but we have access to stand in the presence of God and of his grace. Peace and reconciliation with God brings access to to God. To be a son or a daughter of God brings you, my friend, brother and sister, unparalleled access to God. I remember somebody saying, and I wish I knew the preacher, I'd give them credit. But they said once, there's only one person in the world who could call upon the President of the United States and ask for a drink of water at two in the morning. No world leader could do this. No staffer in the White House could do this. Only one person could call the president and wake him up in the middle of the night and say, I need a glass of water, and the president would act. And of course, that would be his child. Right? A child may call out to his father, even the president of the United States. Nobody has that kind of access to the president. But a child of the president can call upon his dad there in the White House, and say, Dad, I'm thirsty. And the president would get up and get him a glass of water, I assume. Well, brothers and sisters, this is the access you have. Nobody has access to God Most High, the ruler of heaven and earth. But if you are in Christ, you do. You have access to the throne room of God Almighty, the one who holds the whole world in his hands, the one whose purposes can never be frustrated, and you have access to him, and you can bring your prayers and your petitions to him as a son or as a daughter, and he acts on your behalf. Unparalleled access that we have because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because we have been reconciled to him, because we have peace with God, we have that level of access. And again, this should excite us if we're tracking through the story of the Bible. Here again, it's helpful to know your Old Testament. Because one of the themes of the Old Testament is that you lack access to God. One of the great problems that's highlighted in the stories of the Old Testament is that we lack access to God, right? Think of the story in the Garden of Eden. After man sins against God, what happens to him? He's kicked out of the Garden of Eden, right? You no longer have direct access to God. Whereas once man walked and talked with God and was in beautiful relationship with him, now exile. You are outside the garden and an angel with a flaming sword is placed between you and God, symbolizing the fact that you do not have access to him. Or think about Israel as they came to Mount Sinai and God came down to meet with them. None of Israel was allowed to go up the mountain and meet with God. Only Moses, everyone else had to stay down at the bottom of the mountain. Or think about when God established the regulations for the tabernacle or for the temple, when God said, okay, I will dwell in your midst. The problem is none of you can come in and meet with me. Only the high priest can come into the Holy of Holies and have that kind of access with me. Everybody else, out. You are kept out of the presence of God. Now again, there were hints that access would be given Again, when mankind was kicked out of the Garden of Eden, he was given the animal skins. We've talked about that before. Symbolizing perhaps the way man might be able to come back in, clothed properly, having the animal bear the brunt of the sword so that you can pass safely through. The picture was there, but it was just a picture. And on Mount Sinai, God did come meet with his people, and at least Moses was able to go up as a representative of the people. And in the tabernacle and the temple, the people weren't allowed in, but the high priest was allowed as a representative of the people. So there were hints in the Old Testament that while sinful man is alienated from God, God was keeping that line, that connection, pointing forward to the great high priest, the greater Moses, the true animal skin, if you will, that would be our covering so that we could enter into the presence of God. And that, of course, brothers and sisters, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he bore our offenses. He bore that sword, that flaming sword of judgment. Because he did that and was approved by God and thus raised from the dead, we have peace with God and now we have access into his holy presence. And that's why the author of Hebrews says, let us come boldly before his throne of grace. Right? You have access to the heavenly father. You have access to the King of Kings because you are a son or a daughter. Christ's blood covers you. His righteousness covers you so that you have been reconciled and you have access into his very presence. So first implication is peace. Second implication is access. And then thirdly and finally, the third implication of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And again, these are implications for us right now Not just something out there. There are things we can hold on to right now. You have peace with God objectively in Christ right now. You have access to God right now. And thirdly, we have hope. And we rejoice, Paul says, in the hope of the glory of God. What is higher than that? What's higher? What is more awesome? What is more worth having than the glory of God? Yet Paul says it's in that hope, because we have peace with God, because we have access to God in his grace, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now think about that term, the glory of God. Remember back in Romans chapter 3, Paul said, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is, this glory of God is the glory that you were created for. It's what you were meant to share in with God. But sin aborted the process. It aborted that movement toward that participation in and sharing in the glory of God. And sin caused us to fall short. We we couldn't reach the goal of the glory of God that we were created for. But now in Christ, because of his death, because of his resurrection we now have the hope that we will be what God made us to be. Sharers. Participators. With God in his vindicated glory. We rejoice, Paul says, in this hope that finally what we were created to be, we will be. And Paul calls this a hope. And hope's one of those funny words. We have to be careful with it, right? Because we use hope all the wrong way. We use it Kind of in a sloppy way today as in modern American English, right? We use hope to mean like wish, like I hope I win the lottery, you know, or I hope we have good weather tomorrow. Well, that, that's not hope by the proper meaning of the word, right? That, that's, I just desire it. I'm, I'm longing for that, but that's not what hope is. Hope, biblically speaking, is an absolute rock solid certainty in an unseen reality. I don't see it right in front of me, but I know it's true, and I'm banking my life on it with absolute certainty. Even though I can't see it right in front of me, I know it is true. And Paul says, in Christ, we have that. We have hope of the glory of God. It might be difficult to see right now, right, that the process of glorification that sin aborted is fulfilled for me in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I myself am going to be glorified. Remember, Paul will say later in Romans chapter eight, for all those he foreknew, he predestined, and all those he predestined, he called, and all those he called, he justified, resurrection, and all those he justified, he also glorified. That is my glorification, my sharing in that eschatological glory of the Lord Jesus Christ is a certainty, not a wish, but a proper hope that I can own right now." What Paul is saying to us is that you, because you have seen the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you know the end of the story right now, right? The end of our story is not hanging out there and we're not sure what's gonna happen. I mean, listen, as as again, I think it, maybe it's Doug Wilson, I, I need to give credit to these people when I use their words and illustrations, so I'm I'm sorry but these ideas get stuck in my head and I know I've heard it from somebody. But they said, you may not know the way that this chapter in your life ends. I I don't know what today looks like. I don't know what this week looks like for me. I don't know what this month, I don't know how this coronavirus thing ends, right? I don't know how these chapters in my story end, but I do know how the story ends because I have seen the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ And I know that by faith and the gift of the Holy Spirit, I am united to Him. And therefore, I know. It's not a wish. It's a rock-solid certainty and hope that I have right now. The end is not in jeopardy. It has been accomplished. And boy, doesn't that give you peace? Doesn't that give you peace in the midst of all this uncertainty? In the midst of all the things that are swirling around us? That you stand on something solid? You stand on a rock-solid hope because of what you know has happened in the past. Therefore, you know what will happen in the future. And therefore, the present implications of the resurrection for you now are peace, access, and hope. Now, I don't want to preach another sermon here, but I would just direct your attention to the next couple words that Paul brings up in uh, in verses one through five. And because he talks about this hope, And he relates it now even to our tribulations. And I think it's relevant for us because we're in the midst of tribulation as we come into this Easter season, right? This this Easter celebration, we're in the midst of tribulation and trial and affliction. But notice what Paul says. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, right, that rock-solid hope. We can rejoice. It's so exciting to have in the midst of this uncertainty. But then he goes on to say this. And not only that, but we also glory in our tribulations. Uh Uh-oh. This is is the part we don't want him to write. It's like, no, no, no. Shouldn't it be that because we have the hope we're not going to have any tribulations? That's the way we would have written it if we were God, right? We would have Christ die and be raised and then the people of God would be saved and there would be no need for tribulations. But that's not the story of the Bible, right? That's not the story Paul tells either. He says, and not only that, But we glory in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured in our hearts by the gift of the Holy Spirit that was given to us. Listen, you and I have a rock-solid hope in what will happen in the future because we've already seen it happen in the past. We know it's done right we know that but subjectively the way that that hope is built in you imagine i think i've talked before i don't know if it was here or to my students about a faith muscle right that that these trials are building a faith muscle in us it's getting worked out right now right when times are going good our faith muscle gets a little flabby cuz we don't really need to trust in god we trust in a million other things i know of course we need to trust in him objectively it's just that it we our, our faith muscle gets weak we're not trusting in him we're trusting in our job and our bank accounts and all these other kinds of things well the same thing with our hope muscle if you will right it's here it's the way that you build a subjective sense of hope in the objective source of hope the way that you do that let's face it is through trials it's through tribulations Because it's when we go through these things that it builds the kind of character. It strips away all the delusions of the other things that we might trust in. The things we might, small h, hope in. And it fixes our hope on the only rock-solid thing. And so I want to encourage you, taking that part of the text, I want to encourage you and challenge you on this Easter Sunday to embrace, dare I say, glory in our tribulations. Ooh, it feels so... Stressful even to say that. But Paul tells us to do it. To glory in our tribulations, to rejoice, Peter says, in our sufferings, in as much as we suffer with Christ. Right? There's something about going through these sufferings and going through these afflictions, which is going to build our hope muscle. It's going to build our faith muscle. It's going to build that union, that trust. The, the union with Christ, of course, is objective by the Spirit, but it's going to build our sense of. Uh, that union that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe it's going to make us stronger and more faithful Christians. So, happy Easter to you. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And let us, as we look back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and as we look forward to our final resurrection from the dead, let us rejoice today in the implications of that resurrection for you right now. And let us learn to live in them and to apply them and to rejoice in them as Paul tells us to do. Because Christ was risen, brothers and sisters, you, once enemies with God, have peace with God. And because Christ is risen and you have peace with God, you have full, unfettered access to God. And with that kind of access to God, you have hope. You have hope in the glory of God that one day you will share. And you know this because Christ, even right now, is seated at the right hand of the Father. You will share in the glory of God himself. It's what you were meant for. It's what you created for. And it is an absolute certainty for us who are in Christ. Let us, as we go through trials today, let us build the hope muscle and rejoice in these things. Praise be to God. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, apart from that, there is nothing but darkness. But indeed, as you called us to worship this morning from Isaiah 61, you tell us to arise for the light is shining. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the light of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has risen over us and who has shined light into our darkness. We thank you for the peace, the objective peace that we once enemies now have with you as sons and daughters. Oh, Father, by your spirit, would you work that into our hearts that we might also have the subjective peace that comes from knowing it? And Lord, we thank you also for the access that we have that we can run to you as to a father and make our petitions known to you. And Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in a world that is lacking hope. You have given us a rock solid hope in the glory of your name, to know that we ourselves, sinners, will be glorified and sharing that with you. Oh, help us to rejoice in that, even in the midst of our tribulations, trials and struggles. Build character in us. Build our hope muscle. Build our faith muscle through these times, Father. Guard our hearts from whining. Guard our hearts from anxiety. And may we, in the midst of these trials, rejoice in all that you have done for us. Thank you again. For Christ, who bore our offenses and who was raised for our justification, we give you thanks in his name. Amen.